Lord, we ask you to bless this evening as we look at your word. We ask for your guidance and your leading. Show us what you would want us to see, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 7. <clears throat> Jesus has gone to the Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem. He did it no. secretly. And in the midst of this, he started preaching and telling the people that they were that he was trying to be killed. And uh, the people are looking at him, who's trying to kill you because he's in the middle of the temple with nobody arresting him at that time. So John chapter 7, verse 25. Then said some of them in Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man, whence he is, but when Christ comes, no man knows whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and, I, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ comes, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? So we're going to stop there because Jesus is in the temple. He's preaching. He's been saying that everybody, that they're out to kill him. And it was, you, know, you want to picture this. You know, if you're in the middle of the place where people are wanting to try to kill you and you're boldly speaking out, you would expect that you would be arrested. And that's what they're looking at Jesus saying, Hey, he's not being arrested. Nobody's taking him. What's going on? You know, uh, and yet, in verse 25, it says, And some of them in Jerusalem said, Is not the, this he whom they're trying to seek? So it was known in Jerusalem that they wanted to kill Jesus. Now, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles was one of the big feasts that the, all the Jewish people had. So there's lots of people in Jerusalem now that aren't from Jerusalem. They're from Galilee and, and the Samaria area and, and, and uh, all over the nation. So they don't know the ins and outs of what's going on in Jerusalem. So they're looking at him saying, this guy's saying somebody's trying to kill him. We're here. Nobody's trying to kill him. What's going on? But the people in Jerusalem said, that, that's the Jesus of Nazareth that they're trying to, that they're wanting to kill. And, and then they said, but lo, he speaks boldly, and they, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? So they're looking around saying, Jesus is speaking boldly. And nobody's arresting him. And they're going, do these leaders know that he is the Christ as he's claiming to be? And remember, Christ is the anointed one or the Messiah. So they're looking at him saying, well, he's claiming to be Messiah. He's claiming to be the anointed one. Do our leaders actually believe this? Because they're not arresting him in spite of him being boldly speaking and saying these things in the temple. And, there, and there's confusion going on. There's a lot of confusion going on because they're going, a lot of this stuff just doesn't compute for us. He's very bold. They're, we know they're wanting to kill him, and yet are they really understanding that maybe he is the Christ as he claims to be? And this is an interesting statement because there's this confusion of who is he? Who is this that is there out there? <clears throat> and it says, how be it we know whence this man is, but when Christ comes, no man knows whence he is. And this is kind of an interesting statement because there's not really a whole lot scriptural for this. Um, 
Malachi 3.1 kind of indicates that they would, the Messiah would come out of nowhere, but we also have the verses saying that he, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come out of Egypt, um, and that he would reveal himself. You know, so there's plenty of these verses out there, but in the Jewish tradition, they were saying no one will know where the Messiah comes from. He's just going to appear. Now, this is kind of an interesting belief system because the Jewish leaders still teach this, that the Messiah will come out of just out of nowhere. So when we get to the tribulation period and the Antichrist comes in and comes in as a man of peace and, and helps them get their temple started and looks good, he is going to fit just what they've been teaching since Jesus' day. Messiah will come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, you, you, he will reveal himself as the man of peace, the one who's going to deliver Israel. And they're going to fall hook, line, and sinker because of the lie that they believed all the way back when Jesus was there. So it's kind of an interesting statement as because people, you know, many Christians I've heard say, well, how can the Jews believe that, you know, the Antichrist being the Messiah, won't they know that he's not born in Jerusalem? Well, no, they're, going to, they, they're falling back on this doctrine that is not biblical in the scriptures and saying this is what's going to happen. This guy's just going to come out of nowhere and be our great, great leader. And so this is, this is their confusion. They go, we know him. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He was, he's come from Nazareth. We know who he is. So he cannot be the Messiah. You know, the Messiah is what they're, what they're leaning towards. And so this is what's going on as he goes there. And then Jesus said, you both know me and you know whence I am. In other words, you know me after the flesh. All right. You know that I am Jesus of Nazareth. You know I come from Nazareth. And he goes, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. What's he saying? You all don't know God. God sent me and you do not know him. I find that very interesting here in America. How many people will claim to be Christians and yet, when you really try to pin them down at all about God, they don't know God at all in many cases. Uh, don't know anything about his doctrine. Don't know anything about why Jesus came to this world. They don't know how to get to heaven. And yet, they will tell you that they are Christians. These Jewish people believe the same things. They think, we know God. We come to the temple and worship. And remember, the ones he's talking to are the good Jewish people. They've come for tabernacles. They've been obedient. They've come to, to Jerusalem for the, one of the three feasts that they have to come through every year. These are the best of the Jews. And Jesus is telling them, you do not know God. Because all of their relationship with God was in rituals. We go to the temple three times a year. We offer our sacrifices. We make sure we give our tithes and offerings like we're supposed to. We do all of these good works, but they did it without knowing God. And this is why we have to always be careful in our lives that we don't get wrapped up in activities for God and start placing those activities in the place of knowing God. And you, know, and I, and you all know I'm, I love Bible studies. I love all the things we do. But I am always worried that we get these into the wrong place and start substituting them for God. And just like the Jews did, just like many other denominations have done over the years. They end up substituting activity and events and traditions for God. And we want to be very careful of this. He goes, but I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. 
So this is another statement that he's making. He is God. All right. Over and over again in the book of John, John emphasizes the fact that Jesus claims deity. And this is what he says. I am sent from him. I know him and he has sent me. And I have come from him. So, and the response from the people, they sought to take him. <laughs> All right. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. All right. Another place, they took up stones to, you know, to strike him. In this case, they were going to take him. What were they, what were they planning to do to take him? They were going to take him, put him in court for blasphemy, and then stone him. All right. Because he had just claimed to be one with God. All right. And this is very important. And they, it says, they, they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. They could not arrest Jesus at this point because it was not the right time. And this is very important for all of us. When God is not ready for us to, to die or be arrested or whatever, we're invincible. And this is one of the things, if you look into any of the history of places where persecution on the church has happened, people are very bold to preach God. The disciples were bold to preach God because they knew that until God was ready to take them home, there was nothing that could happen to them. All right? Now, if you read uh, Richard Warmbrandt from Romania during the, during the persecution, he talks about how they boldly witnessed on the streets, even though it meant that they were going to be sent to the gulags. And over and over, you read these various places where people are being persecuted, and they're bold because they understand that the purpose is to preach Christ. And Jesus was bold. And it says they could not take him. And this is, you've got a picture where he's, where he's at. He's at the temple. You've got all the priests, all the Sanhedrin. You've got the temple guard. There's plenty of opportunity in people to be able to arrest him. And it says nobody laid hands on him because of it was not his time. And I find that is a very interesting statement for us to know that we are protected as long as it's not our time. Now the problem is we don't know when our time is, but when it is time, then we just know that God's got that ordained as well. All right? And it says, And many people believed on him and said, When Christ comes, will he do more miracles than this man does? What kind of miracles? He's fed the 5,000. He's healed the blind. He's, he's healed the lame. He's, he's raised people from the dead. And it's getting out there that he is doing all these miracles and all of these things are going on. And we know that he, Jesus was known for this because when Josephus wrote, he called Jesus a man, a magician who, did, who appeared to do miracles. All right? He doesn't actually ad admit that they were miracles. But he says he was, but he definitely made known that Jesus was known as somebody who did miracles. And so all of these people are looking at him and saying, there's something different about him. We don't quite know if he's Messiah or not, but look at all the miracles that this man does. And I wonder what it would have been like to be around Jesus and watch people getting healed. Lepers being healed, blind men being healed, lame being healed. Every time you turn around, somebody's being healed. Several times where he fed large crowds, uh, you know, and all these things that happened. And you're, everywhere you go, there's a miracle. So he's showing that he is not just a man, 
He is something more than a man. And all of this going on, and nobody is able to arrest him at this period of time. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am there you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Where would he go that we should not find him? Will he go to the, unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he says, You shall seek me, and shall not find me. Where I am, there you cannot come. Now this is kind of an interesting thing because he's talking about his death burial. Understand this, uh, and the Pharisees are getting upset. The people are murmuring that this is the Messiah, all right. And some of them actually believe that he might be. I mean, he, that he's fitting all the signs, but he's not delivered them from Rome, and he doesn't show any signs of building an army to deliver them from Rome. So there's some concerns, like. Could this really be the Messiah? He is not living up to what we expect. And you know, one of the problems that we sometimes have is sometimes our expectations get in the way of listening to God because we start thinking this is what God's going to do, this is how God's going to do it, and then we don't see what God is doing. This is what the Pharisees have. They don't see what God's doing because their expectations are totally skewed. They're expecting a great military leader to, to make them the number one nation in the, in the world. And when Jesus doesn't show any of these signs, they have trouble with this. And so they send the officers and say, hey, you know, get the temple guard over there. Get him arrested. Get him arrested. He's, he's causing a problem here in church. <laughs> in the temple, he's causing a problem. He's teaching things that we don't want taught and Jesus said, you know, Let a, for a little while I am with you, then I will go to him that sent me. I'm here just a little longer. Now this statement if, doesn't mean as much to us as Christians, but you know, to the Gentile, to, to the Jews there, they were waiting for a Messiah who was going to build a kingdom and have an eternal throne. And he says, I'm just going to be here a little while and then I'm going back. That did not make sense to them because that's not what they expected. And so this is going to be a big problem. They're going to hold it. You're supposed to be here building a kingdom that's going to be an eternal kingdom. That you're going to sit on the throne. What do you mean you're not going to be here for, but for a little while, and then you're gone, and you're planning to go back to God? And it says, "You shall seek me and not find me. For where I am, there you cannot come." It goes, you can't come to where I'm going. And what is he talking about? Well, at the beginning, he says, "You." You cannot know me because you do not know him. So he's telling them straight up that they're not going to be able to follow him into heaven because they don't know God. Again, they don't fully understand all of this because they're based on traditions, doing good works. As long as we do what we're supposed to do, we're okay. As long as I do more good than bad, I'm okay. As long as I get out and offer my sacrifice, I'm okay doesn't matter whether I believe in God or not, but I believe that it works. I'm just offering a sacrifice. And over the years, I've seen the same thing happen amongst Christians. Well, I come to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I give my offerings. I read my Bible. That's all I need to do to get to heaven. Well, you forgot one very important thing. What are you doing with Jesus? 
Is he your Lord and Savior or not? Not all the activities that we do. And there's nothing wrong necessarily with the activities, but we cannot put them in the place of God. And this is what's going on with these people. And then they really got a very interesting thing. Will he go, uh, where will he go that we can't find him? Will he go to this first among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? This was a horrible thought to them. What is this guy going to do? Is he going to go out and first talk to the dispersed Jews, and then he's also going to talk to the Gentiles? What happened to Paul? He went out, talked to the dispersed Jews, and then went to the Gentiles when he was rejected. So this is already understood that this is what's going to happen. Because all through the scriptures, it talks about the Gentiles coming to God. And yet the Jews did not accept the idea that Gentiles would come to God because they were the special people. No, you know, God chose them over all the other people. And the idea of Gentiles coming to God was anathema to them. They just could not understand that that could be a possibility. And here they are thinking that this guy claims to be the, the Messiah. What's he going to do? Going to go, go speak to the Gentiles? And this whole problem that the Jews had against anybody who wasn't Jewish was a big problem. God created Adam and Eve and all other people came from that from one, one family, we're all part of the human race. Why would God not care for his people? And yet the Jews have figured we're special because God chose Abraham, our father. And because he chose him, and then he chose Isaac, and then he chose Jacob, we're, we're above everybody else. Nobody else is going to come to God. And they literally built up that doctrine that nobody else was going to be accepted into God's kingdom except for them. And when they're thinking this, when they say this, it reads like it's no big deal. But when they were saying this, this is a big deal for them to even consider. Uh, the one who's claiming to be Messiah, what's he going to do? Go see the Gentiles? <laughs> you know, that to them was a horrifying idea. And then he's going, what manner is this that he says, you shall seek me and you shall not find me because you cannot come to where I am going. So even if he went to the Gentiles, they couldn't figure that out because, okay, so he goes to the Gentiles. We, we can follow him to the Gentiles. We won't be happy about it, but we can find him at the Gentiles. But Jesus is speaking of his death, burial and resurrection and his ascension to the, to the Father. And, you know, they don't understand this. They don't see this being the case. You know, they're going, you may seek me, seek the Messiah, seek, seek an answer, but you're not going to find me because you're not looking the right way. And this is something we always have to do is be very careful that we seek God properly according to his standards. And that is to get to know him as the, as the sacrifice for our sins and then get into a personal relationship with him. The Jews very rarely had a personal relationship with God. They didn't understand it. When Jesus taught them to pray to God as father, that was strange to them. They did not see God as father. They did not see a God who loved them even. They saw a God that you had to be obedient to so that he might at least accept you. But that was also the picture of a father back then. You, you didn't really get attracted to your fathers in that day and age. It was father was somebody who stood above everything. You know, uh, and that was their attitude of God. Even if he was their father, he was above them and didn't really you know, want to show love and care. He was just above and Jesus is telling them you need to have a different look at who this is. 
Verse 37 says, And in the last day, that, that great fee, day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto, come to, unto me to drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake as the Spirit, which they had, that believed on him would receive. The, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because the Jews, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, "Of a truth, this is a prophet." And others said, "This, this is the Christ." And some said, "Shall Christ come out of Galilee?" Hath not the Scripture said that Christ comes of the seed of David and, and out of the town of Bethlehem? where David was from, so there was a division among the people because of him. And some would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. So here we go with more on this. In the, in the last day of the feast, okay, the Feast of Tabernacles is an eight-day feast. So the eighth day of the feast, Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because this is said in various places. In Isaiah uh, 55, it says that he shall be the living water. Isaiah also says, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, excuse me, uh, John 4, 13 and 15, uh, uh, 14 says this, Matthew 5, 6 says this, you know, Jesus says, I am the living water. If you are thirsty, come unto me. And this is very important for us. Are we thirsty for God? We come unto Jesus to get filled. Man was created to be in a relationship with God. Adam and Eve were created, placed in a garden where God visited them every single evening and talked with them and taught them. For how long? We don't know. I don't think it was very long because there's other problems that would happen if it had been a long time. But they were created to be in relationship with God. And when they sinned by eating that fruit, that relationship with God was severed in that intimacy. Now they still had a relation, God talked to them, he kicked them out of the garden, he talked to them, talked with Cain and Abel, God has talked with them over, the, over time, but the intimate relationship they were supposed to have was gone. And ever since then, people have been looking for that intimate relationship and in, in, in trying to fill it. And greatest example is in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon was trying to fill that emptiness that he missed from God, and he tried to fill it with everything, and nothing filled it. And we know from philosophy that nothing fills the emptiness outside of God, because it's a gap that only God can fill. And Jesus has said, if you're thirsty, come and drink, and I will give you this drink. Uh, and he says, and he that believes on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Interestingly enough, there is no verse in the Bible that says just that words. There are ones that indicate it or seem like it. Uh, there's verses like Isaiah 44, 3 and 4, which talk about it. Uh, Joel 3.18, Isaiah 58.11. Uh, there's verses that come close to this idea. 
but Jesus is saying that out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Out of whose belly? His belly. All right. Uh, Paul tells us that Jesus was the rock that the water flew, flew, uh, flowed out of in, in the wilderness as the as rock went with the people everywhere they went. So that was a literal filling, but it's also a spiritual filling. When we know him, we get overabundantly filled with God's presence. And this is what John says in verse 39, that this he spoke of the Spirit, which they believed on him should receive the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit was not yet come because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the people had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. All right? Various times over, his, over the periods of the Bible, people got filled with the Holy Spirit and, and was ministering. But as a whole, the Holy Spirit was not available to people. At Pentecost, after Jesus was resurrected, the Holy Spirit came and filled the entire disciples. All 150-some that, you know, that were sitting in that upper room that night got filled. And that filling gave them boldness. God dwells in us. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. It's not just about knowing God's word. It's not just knowing information about him. It is literally being filled with God. We are, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, he comes and indwells us, and we get the filling that we had that we were designed to be before the fall of Adam and Eve when they met with God every day. And we get to meet with God every day because he is indwelling us. And it's a beautiful thing. And Jesus is telling them, you're not there yet. You don't, you're not understanding this, but there is going to be a time when you can be filled with God. And then when, when he talks about being filled, it's not just filled to the full, but filled to overflowing so that God comes out and touches everybody around us. Uh, you know, and I've talked about this before, you know, there's so much of the spirit in us that he's splashing out on everybody as we go by. And some people like it. You know, when we're around other Christians, they like being splashed on by the Holy Spirit. If you're around the world, they get splashed on by the Holy Spirit and they don't like it because that holy righteousness of the Holy Spirit splashes on them and it does not feel good to them, and it does and makes them know that something's wrong. Uh, it's kind of like when you're, if you're into the vampires and everything, holy water on, on them was supposed to burn on them. It's the same type of thing. The Holy Spirit splashing all over the, the world burns them. It makes them irritated about what's going on. And so he says all this, and, and it says, and many of the people there, when they heard them, said, of the truth, this is a prophet. All right, they're not ready to go. To, he's the Christ. They're going. He is a prophet. Now, this is a statement that cannot be a very good one because a prophet does not get worship, and Jesus takes worship. So, in other words, they're saying, you know, he's supposed to be a good man, but really he's lying to us, claiming to be God. All right. Others said, this is the Christ. All right. We accept who he is. Their problem, though, is that they didn't understand. He goes, 
they, they understood the Christ going to be a military leader, so they don't really understand him as being their savior. And then others said, shall the Christ come out of Galilee? So what did they know about Jesus? They did not know everything about him. They knew that he was out of Galilee, Nazareth. They did not realize that he'd moved from Nazareth from Egypt and that from, and they'd moved to Egypt from Bethlehem. All they knew is that this is a Galilean. You know, we know that the Christ does not come from Galilee, is their statement. And, and then it says, Hath not the scripture said that, Jesus, uh, the, that Christ comes from the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? All right, so in other words, they understood. The Christ needs to come from Bethlehem. They're looking at Jesus, who is known of, as Jesus of Nazareth, and said, he's about as far from Bethlehem as you can get to the north without leaving our country, so how can he be the Christ? And one of the things that is so wonderful is when God does things, he does them in his way so that people cannot just say, well, that's how I knew it was going to happen. And they're looking for certain things, and, and it's not happening the way they expect it to happen. Now, I have lots of conversations with different people about, you know, it appears that we're in the end times. And it does appear that we're in the end times. Does, does it mean we're at the end times? I don't know. It, everything, all the appearances show that we are, but could there be a revival? Could there be something, something else that, that's going to happen? I don't know. I like to think we're at the end times on one side because I'm ready to go home. I'm ready for God to just take us all home. On the, on the flip side, I've got some grandchildren that I'm not so sure about where they are with God, and I don't really want to see them come until I know where they are with God. So we need, you know, there's all these backwards and forwards, and when Jesus is ready to come, he's coming, and nothing's going to stop him. And we need to be very careful because they understood that Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. They did not look at Jesus well enough to know that he was from Bethlehem, that he was born in Bethlehem. All they knew is he was a Galilean and from Nazareth, had a Galilean accent, so there was no way that he was from Jerusalem, uh, from Bethlehem, as far as they were concerned. And we need to be very careful when we're doing anything spiritual that we don't start walking by what we see. They saw a Nazarene, but they did not look deeper into what was going on. How many times are decisions made and things done that are not correct because people do not walk by the Spirit? They walk by what they see and what they think they see. And we do it all the time. We make decisions all the time based on what we think we see on a situation rather than talking to God and getting his input and making spiritual decisions. It's so easy because we're flesh and blood. We go by what we see, and it's hard for us to get into this idea of what does God say. So there's all this great division in verse 43. So there was a division amongst the people because of him. And so this is very interesting. There's all kinds of people. Some saying he's a prophet, some saying he's Christ, some saying, well, he's a total lunatic because you know, he cannot be the Christ because he's not from Bethlehem. He's not, not, a, not, a, not of Judah, which they did not recognize that he was from parents that are of the line of David. So he is of the tribe of Judah. He is, was born in Bethlehem, but had just lived all of his, most of his years up in, in Nazareth. 
And they walked by sight. They did not look to see what the Holy Spirit had to say about all of this. And because of this, there's a great division. Great division. And it said, And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Twice now John has said this, at this during this feast. They wanted to take him and arrest him, but nobody could arrest him. Now, I don't know if you think, see this as funny as I do. It's not like Jesus is hiding from the authorities. He is in the temple. They could have arrested him at any moment. They had plenty of temple guards. And yet no man could arrest him. Right? So think about this. You're, you're, you're on the ten most wanted list in the town. There's police all around you all the time and not a one of them can find you and get you arrested. This is the picture that's going on in here. For eight days, Jesus is at the temple, and none of the temple guard, guard can get him arrested. None of the scribes and Pharisees can get him arrested, even though he's right in the temple preaching and teaching. Some of it is that they were afraid to arrest him in front of the crowd because that might cause a riot. Uh, and then when he would leave, they couldn't find him. But you know, it's not like he's hiding. He's right out in the open. He's not a fugitive from them hiding and keeping, keeping hidden. And yet, over and over, John says, they could not lay hands on him. They could not get him arrested because he was not going to be there. So he is all this division up there, out there. Verse 45, Then came the officers to the chief priest and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, Never spake a man like this man. Then answered the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisee believed on him? But this people who know not the law are cursed. Nicodemus said unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he does? They answered and said unto him, Are you also of Galilee? Search and look out. For out of Galilee arises no prophet, and every man went to his own home. So at the end of the feast, the, the chief priest and the Pharisees basically attacked the guard. <laughs> you know, why it, did you not arrest him? He's been in here every day for the last eight days. Where is he? Why did he, get out, why did he slip out of your grips? So attacking their police force. Why aren't you doing your job? I kind of think that sounds so familiar to what's been going on in the news lately, you know, when they say, you know, calling the police out and you're not doing your jobs, you're not following through. They're going after him and saying, you didn't, you didn't do your job. Where is he? He's been here. Why, why is he not in, your, in jail at this point? And the officers answered, never spoke a man like this. In other words, they go... We've been listening to a lot of teachers. We, we stand in the temple a lot. We hear all the teachers. Nobody teaches like this man. Nobody is like him at all. And we, he is saying things that we cannot even believe are being said. We, he, is, he is claiming to be the Messiah. He's, he knows scriptures. Uh, and they're going, we have never heard anything like what's being said. And the Pharisees go... Are you also deceived? 
Have you been deceived? Do you not know what truth is? And this is kind of an interesting statement because, uh, and then they said, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Now this is kind of an interesting statement because we're going to find out there are several Pharisees that are, that are believing in Jesus. Of the group of the Pharisees, there were individuals who accepted Jesus as, as the Messiah. Nicodemus, Ananias, uh, excuse me, uh, jo- jo- Joseph <laughs> of Arimathea. We have several of them that are going to believe in him and become Christians when, when things change. But we're going to see why they don't in just a moment right here from this scripture. He goes, have any of us believed in him? Uh, and then he says in verse 39, but this people who know not the law are cursed. So they're going, only people who don't really believe know the law are believing in him. Now, if they had known the law, they would have believed in him, but they think they know the law, but they know it only in a certain aspects. Right? Uh, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the entire first five books of the Bible. You knew the law, at least verbally but they really never understood the law because what they then studied was all the writings by the other rabbis and Pharisees about the law and they placed more emphasis on what those people wrote than what God said in the law. This is my problem when I talk to people and go and I like commentaries in their right place but I found too many people who take what the commentaries say as opposed to what the word of God says. And that's a danger. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, well, all these Pharisees for hundreds of years have been saying this, so we're going to buy into what they say rather than what the law says. And then they got lost in what others said about the law. This is the danger with teaching. All right? We can teach people and end up having them believe more in what we say rather than what the Bible says if we're not careful. And that's why we have to have good teachers. And sometimes I've listened to even good teachers who have said things that just didn't make sense. And here's what they're saying. He's going, you guys are cursed. This man's claiming to be God. We know there is but one God. And he cannot be God because there is only one God. That's their, that's their, that's their line of argument. But even in their great statement, the Lord our God is one God, it has both Elohim and Yahweh in that statement, and Elohim is a plural word for God. The very first word in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created, and that is Elohim. It's a plural word for one God. And then when he says, let us make man in our own image, he's talking to the plurality of the one God. So... All of these things in there, they know that there's one, one God, but they also know that there's multiple expressions of that God in some format. And, but they're going to say, he cannot be God. He's claiming to be God. Therefore, he is a blasphemer. Blasphemy. You know, he is saying that he is God and that we know that that can't be true. And so they're, they're struggling with all of what they think they know as opposed to what is being said. And Nicodemus said unto them, in verse 51, Does our law judge any man before it hear him and knows what he does? 
In other words, he's coming and going, you have not brought him to court, you have not asked him any questions, you have not listened to him, and you are judging him as guilty. And he says, that is not the way we do things. And Nicodemus is standing up to a small degree for Jesus. He, he had gone, remember in chapter 3, he had gone to Jesus at night. He had talked to Jesus about how, what, it, what, what it meant to be saved and who he was and what he was doing and didn't come out as a follower of Jesus at that point. But obviously he's very sympathetic to him. Toward the end, when he's trying to bury him, he's one of the ones that goes and takes the body and buries him on Passover, which was a really big deal to take the, a dead body and bury it on Passover because that meant he could not practice Passover. He had to practice a, a month later. So we're going to find out that he's fallen, but he's challenging this group. Do we judge somebody without listening to their defense? And I love this statement because this is important for us. Do we judge somebody without listening to them, without talking to them? Uh, and this can be very important. I, I knew a guy in, in one church, he purposely brought people with tattoos and, and biker-looking guys that were Christians into a church just to see how people were going to react to them. Purposely. Because were they going to do this? Were they going to judge somebody before they had, had any knowledge of them? And we need to be very careful because this is something we do need to know. If somebody claims to be a Christian, do we talk to them and know, are you really a Christian? And, you know, or do we just look at somebody and say, well, you look like a Christian. You've you got, you got short hair. You're dressed up real nice. And you, and you haven't been using drugs that we can, and alcohol that we can tell. Or do we look at somebody and go, oh, you know, that guy's got tattoos. He's rough and rough around the edges. They're, you know, I don't know anything about him, but that person can't be a Christian. We need to be very careful. Do we look into things before we make decisions? And Nicodemus is making this defense for them, for Jesus. You need to talk to him. He had already talked to him. He knew Jesus' doctrine. He knew what Jesus said. And the rest of them are just based on what they think they know, what they think they've heard. But their answer shut him right up. He goes, are you also of Galilee? Are you a Galilean? Which he's not. He goes, search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. So in other words, this man's from Galilee. There's not a single prophet in the Old Testament, the, the record, that came from Galilee. I'm not sure if that's a true statement or not. I'm going to trust that the Pharisees knew that because they, that was their specialty. But he goes, He's from Galilee, you know, the, the worst part of, of Israel to be from. You know, he's up there way up north. And, you know, there's nothing good that, you know, as, as Philip said you know, uh, to Andrew, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, Naz Galilee had a bad reputation amongst the entire nation, and Nazareth had a bad reputation in Galilee. So those who had a bad reputation had a bad opinion of Galilee, of Nazareth. And so Jesus is not only from Galilee, he is from Nazareth, and the people are going there. Is, the Messiah definitely can't come from there. He's got to come from Judah which is, and from Bethlehem, which was only about 50 miles, from, you know, 17 or so miles away from Jerusalem. And they're going, he's way too far the other direction from the part of the country that nothing good comes from. There's never been a prophet that's come out of that area. So how can you be thinking that this is the Messiah? 
You know, we don't care about anything he says. We don't even care about talking to him. We don't even want to find out what his lineage is. Because what little they did know about him, they considered him a bastard. They, because they've even in many, on more than one occasion said, we know who our father is. In implication, you don't know who your father is. They understood enough about him to know that he had some kind of shady background when he was born. They did not understand that he had been born in Bethlehem. And why would they? Because he's at the right age that anybody who had been born in Bethlehem should have been dead. Because Herod killed all the children that were two years and younger, males two years and younger at that age. So Jesus being 33, 34 years old at this point, they were going to go, you can't be from Bethlehem. All the boys were killed in Bethlehem. Your age were killed in Bethlehem back then. So you're definitely not from Bethlehem. And we know that you're from Nazareth and Galilee. So all of everything they thought they knew indicated that he could not be Messiah. And this is what they're telling, telling Nicodemus. And if you've ever been in a place where you're standing alone against a crowd, you know how difficult this is for Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of them, and they're attacking him greatly. And, and he doesn't have enough courage to continue to stand, stand up for Jesus. He basically is apparently silenced from this, this attack. And then verse 53 says, And every man went to his own home. The feast was over. They did not get Jesus arrested. He had obviously left by the time that this had happened. So everyone now goes back to their own home and says, Okay, we're done, we're done with this event. We're done with the feast. We could not get, we could not get this usurper, this, this false messiah as they're looking at him. We did not get him arrested. He hasn't been, he's not set up to be executed at this point. And they leave, I guess, disappointed that they did not get what they wanted. They wanted him gone. He's been upsetting the apple cart. Because the Sanhedrin, which is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are, they are in power. If Jesus had even become Christ, been made the Messiah, they lose all their authority. Because if he... If he gets the kingdom, then they expect him to be to put them in their place for having rejected him. If he doesn't get a kingdom, Rome takes him out of their place for letting him, another false messiah come, come into existence. So they're in a catch-22. No matter what they do, they're in trouble. And these guys are political creatures, so they're going to do what appears to be best. Rome is in charge. We're going to side with Rome, and we're not going to pick up this person because they've had several people claim to be Messiah, build up armies, create a rebellion, and then be cast down. And they understand that if they back the wrong horse, <laughs> that they're going to lose authority. In their case, they did back the wrong horse. They backed Roman, Roman Empire, but it's not going to fulfill until well after the Christian church gets established under the Roman Empire. But they're not they still lose their authority because of the rebellions and stuff that go on and, and Jerusalem then being destroyed in 70 AD, so they still lose out because they chose to not support God. And there's going to be a consequence to that, that action. We talk about it all the time. There's always consequences to every action that we make. Good consequences, bad consequences, it doesn't matter. There's always consequences for our decisions. 
which are why we want to pray to God and make godly decisions so that our consequences will be godly instead of doing things in our own way. You know, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean on him to your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. How many times do we make decisions based on our own understanding and then wonder why consequences, bad consequences happen? Because we never brought God into the situation. The Pharisees are not bringing God into the situation. They're going, this is what we know to be true. And because this is what we know to be true, we're going to make our decision based on what we understand the truth to be. And Jesus kept saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And they're going, no, we're not buying, we're not buying what you say. We're going, to, we're going to follow what we believe to be true. And they found out that it was not a valid direction to go into. And so all of these things going on, Jesus announces who he is and yet is rejected. And from this point on in John, he, we're going to find Jesus being in Jerusalem on this area, in, in this area, preaching and teaching and following up with it, with it. This is his time of persecution, and John spends most of his gospel in his time of persecution as they're trying to arrest him and put him into prison. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we continue to look at your word, guide and lead us. Show us what you'd want us to see from all of this and help us to understand all that, that you want us to understand and to seek you first and understand with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.